Welcome to the Holy Smokes Podcast, a show about faith, friendship, fine tobacco, and drink. I'm Steve Ryder in the Franklin, Tennessee area, hanging out with Kay, and we're outside of Crown Cigars and Ales in the Franklin, and I am sitting down with someone that ever since Kay told me about him, I have been like, oh my gosh, I cannot wait for this interview. Charles Robinson, welcome to the Holy Smokes Podcast. Thank you, it's an honor to be here. I appreciate you having me on. So, I guess, first question, what you smoking? I'm smoking uh, one of our cigars, the Atsuniki Amaya, uh, with a Habano wrapper on it. It's Robusto size, and yeah, it's one of my favorites. You said our cigars, Atsuniki. That's correct. Talk about that. So I started this cigar company about, know, about five or six years ago uh, with the idea to uh, develop a revenue stream for a nonprofit organization I started 27 years ago. So we named the company Atsuniki, which is my name in my wife's Blackfoot language. So I come from the Choctaw Nation. My wife is Lakota and Blackfoot. And, uh, and Atsuniki and Blackfoot means storyteller. And so I love it. I love uh, it already. Yeah. And uh, we named each. We have three different blends. Uh, the one that you're smoking with a Connecticut wrapper on it is called the Nanaya. And the tor- that one's in the Toro size. We also have a Petite Corona size in that. And Nanaya is the name of one of our children. And Nanaya means peace or reconciliation in Choctaw. The one I'm smoking, Emaya, means uh, victory. And then we have one that's a little bolder. The Tushke, which means warrior, that's from the, all named after some of our children. That's awesome. That's yeah. cool. So, talk about growing up. Tell me your story. You know, growing up in the Dallas-Fort Worth area, it was a strange situation for me because I'd always identified with my Choctaw heritage as this young Indian boy, but I didn't know any other natives that lived in our area, right? And the only natives I knew were on my father's side of the family up in Oklahoma who struggled with addictions, mm. right? Which is so pervasive throughout, throughout yeah. Native American culture. Yeah, it really is. And there's some reasons for that we can get into, but, but I grew up reading everything I could on Native people. I mean, back then, you know, we had the Encyclopedia Britannica. That's where we got most of our information, right? Yeah. And I read books, any novels, anything I could find as a young kid. And I wanted to be like the natives, the Indians that I, I read about, not yeah. necessarily the ones that I'd have a, had a real life experience with because so many of them just struggled with the addictions. Yeah. Great people, but just had a lot of life challenges. So uh, growing up that way and uh, then going to college in Oklahoma and, and just pursuing life, you know, trying to make a million bucks and trying to live that life chasing different dreams that took me all around the country. Like and, what? Well, I was in sales for a while, but that was just kind of a default career to get into. That took me up to Michigan. And I woke up one day and I had this conversation with God and I just said, uh, I felt like God asked me, how long do you continue to do something that you know you don't want to do for the rest of your life? Ooh, ooh. And I thought about that the next morning and I, I said, well, I don't want to sell I don't want to sell corrugated boxes the rest of my life, which is what I was doing. You know, Domino's was my number one account. Yeah. I don't want to sell pizza boxes the rest of my life. So the next day I gave my boss a two week notice and left the company. No plans? No plans, had no idea what I was going to do. 
a few days before, I thought, well, I'll move back to Texas, spend some time with my mom, see my dad. A few days before I left, I get a phone call from a, a guy I had met six months earlier. And this guy randomly called me looking for somebody else that was with me when we met. And uh, we got into conversation, told him I was about to move back to Texas. And he said, well, I work out of this dude ranch. Why don't you come out and ride horses for the season and teach people how to ride, do trail rides? Yeah. Oh, great. That turned into about three years of working on the dude ranch, which was great fun. Uh, student loans went into default and, you know, was, wasn't making any money, but having a great time. Then decided, you know what, I'm going to give that up. I'm either going to go to Nashville or maybe I'll go to California. Those are two places that were kind of, you know, on Under my heart. radar. Yeah, just because both those areas represented places where, where people pursued dreams. And I wasn't a singer. I'm not a songwriter. I didn't do any of that, but I loved country music. So I thought, well, I'll go to one of those two places. I left Western Michigan, going to drive down to Texas, spend some time with my mom before I made that decision. How old were you at the time? Oh, uh, gosh. I was in my upper 20s. Okay. Single? My, single. My car breaks down in Nashville. <laughs> and I've been here 26 years. That was it. That was, uh, okay, God, you must want me in Nashville. So I went to work for Glenn Campbell on the management side, uh, managing, uh, helping with some different country artists that our company managed, and did that for five or six years. And I just, again, I was going, man, it's great fun, but there's, I'm, I'm not being personally fulfilled in whatever this is. Then I went to work, uh, left the company, uh, went to work for about a year helping book faith-based speakers for various events, or speakers for faith-based events, rather. And then after doing that for a year, I, as I was thinking about what am I going to do, I just want to be a, a somebody who's just booking and taking care of stuff for other people, which is great. Now I, I saw God if there, if you have something different or more for me, show me what that is. And he began to place on my heart our Native American people and got to looking into the statistics of the struggles and challenges on our reservations. Now, I didn't grow up on a reservation, so I had a big learning curve I had to, to climb. And, uh, you know, some of those things were, you know, addiction rates that, you know, four or five times the national average. Yeah. Right? Suicide rates that are seven times the national average. Yes. But only between three and 5% of our native people profess to know Jesus. And I thought, God, is there anything, I mean, can you use me in that area? Now, did you grow up in a, in a Christian home, in a faith-based home? I did, well, I say I grew up in a faith-based home. I became a follower of Jesus when I was in high school through the Young Life Ministry. And so when I came to know Jesus, it was 100% based on the relationships that I'd had with my Young Life leader, a guy named Vance Patterson. A mutual friend of ours. Yeah, and it was a very relational approach to understanding who Jesus is. Yeah. Uh, so I started this organization called The Red Road. Mm -hmm. And it's a nonprofit, 501c3, and we go and do humanitarian and ministry work in Native American communities. Which I would assume, from what I know about that community, because as we were talking before, I was told as a kid, young kid, that I had a great, great grandma who came from a tribe in the Montreal area and DNA 
23andMe has proven that out. And I've always, since a young kid, had this real deep affinity for that culture. As a white guy going in there, I'm sure that there are, because of the generations of trauma and oppression and lies and all of that, there's a real hesitancy to accept someone who looks like me, but you clearly... Yeah, you're right about that. And and, and getting over that obstacle is, is the first challenge. But because of the, the damage done by the church or Christians for the last, you know, four or 500 years, you know, that's a mountain to climb when you're trying to convince somebody that Jesus loves them. Now, the, the most native people are very spiritual. Yes and have an understanding of God. And most are monotheistic. Most believe in a single creator. Most people do. Most of tribal people do. But because of the junk that has been done to mm-hmm. our native people through the reservation system, through the residential schools, through government agencies, uh, awful. Yeah, people awful. reject mm-hmm. Christianity because you know, and, and understandably so, because of what's been done in the past, right? So when I started this organization called The Red Road, uh, the intent was to be very relational in our approach. And uh, like the story of the Good Samaritan, where you come in and the guy sees somebody left on the side of the road half dead, right? And he just takes care of him, meets his needs. That's really kind of been our approach. We try and uh, just be a blessing to people. You know, maybe that's firewood in the wintertime, maybe that's propane, maybe that's food or clothing or coats or shoes or whatever. Meeting daily needs of people, regardless of whether they want to sit and listen to about, hear about the person of Jesus or not, just loving on people. Has there been a challenge for you going in there as someone who didn't grow up in that kind of environment? There has been a little. Really? Um, Talk about that. So with my wife who grew up on a reservation, number one, she instantly picks up on the humor, the subtlety of stuff in the community, and not having grown up around that, a lot of that's foreign to me still. Really? It took me a while to really, and I'd, I'd be sitting there and somebody would say something, everybody's laughing, and I'm thinking, that's not really funny. Why is everybody laughing? Right? Because that was a type of humor that I didn't grow up with, I was not accustomed to. I'm much better with it now, but it hasn't always been that way. So, um, you know, and there are certain cultural aspects that if you've traveled around the world, it's very similar in a lot of communities where if you offer something to eat, whether you like it or not, you you eat it, right? You receive it and you at least sample it. And I struggled with that early on because I was like, man, I don't like that. I don't want to eat that. But I, you know, I realize it's more disrespectful to not. Mm. So some of these kinds of things. Yeah. And then also with the different tribes, we go, the different communities we go to, you're going to have different, uh, um, you know, each tribe may do things a little different than the others. So you got to be willing to compromise, uh, not your beliefs, but to, to understand it. To reach these people, it's going to be done this way, right? If I used to be on staff with the, the Fellowship of Christian Athletes. Were you an athlete growing up? I was, yeah. Football? I, football and basketball. You know, when I was on staff, and I, I went to the University of Oklahoma, and I, when I was on staff with the FCA, 
if I'm going to reach out to high school football players, I want to bring some of my OU college football players to speak to them, right, share with them. But I'm reaching out to the baseball team or the basketball team, I'm going to bring different players, right? So you, you just got to be able to roll with it as you go to different tribes and realize what's important to different tribal people. Mm. Now, where are you doing ministry? We're in uh, South Dakota, Montana, Idaho, Arizona, and up in Alberta, Canada. Those are the main places. How did those doors open? And why those areas? Um, we chose those areas early on just from context we knew. When I started the Red Road, I didn't have any clue what I was doing. I was like, okay, God, I'm just gonna go. I don't know what it means, I'm just gonna go, right? Yeah. I reached out to some friends and I said, hey, I know somebody on this reservation. So we go there and God will have gone before and kind of paved the way. You know how God's kind of funny and doing things that way and lay things out and then people you meet and friendships you make. Uh, and then that just kind of led from one to the next, to the next, to the next. And so we still go back to those same communities. The key has been consistency. Really? Yeah, you know, because so many times, and we see this on the reservations every summer when these vacation Bible, they, uh, churches come in from around the country, do their vacation Bible schools with the kids on the reservations. And it's a big fun time for the kids and all this kind of stuff. And they clean some parks or paint some buildings. Then they go home and the tribal people don't hear from them again until the next year when they come back. A new set of kids, right, to bring in, to expose to the, to the poor Indians, right? That's kind of this approach. So there's no consistency. Um, How was that received? For the most part, they look and they say, they see the big white church vans pull into town and say, okay, the circus is in town again. <laughs> I've got a buddy of mine, he said, my kids, that they know the routine every summer. He said they go to the VBS and they eat hot dogs and hamburgers, and they play the games, and it's a great time for my kids, he said, scouting the reservation. He said, my kids are getting saved seven, eight times a summer. And the disheartening part is that the, in most of those situations, the church is, doesn't have consistent follow-up throughout the year. Native American culture is very, very, very relational. That's right. right. That's right, yeah. It's a very giving, very kind, very loving, very sharing community. Mm -hmm. All of our Native communities are that way. I've been in every one of them. But a lot of people, um, we were created, as humans, we were created for relationships. And so when, when people just come in, make a splash, then leave, a year later they come in, make another splash, leave, it can sometimes do more harm than good. Oh, man. How have things changed? How long have you been doing this now? 21 years. How have things changed over the last 21 years? Well, for us, with the Red Road, we've been able to go much deeper in these communities where we show up and we're in touch with these folks in the communities throughout the year. And so when we come back, hey, it's Charles and Susan again, right? Or there's some of the folks we may bring along with us that we're able to slowly introduce in. And we're, it's just probably the, the greatest aspect of it is the depth to which we've been able to go in these communities. And when there are suicides or when there are overdoses, they can call us. And if we can't be there, we can connect them to other people who they will now trust because they came referred from us. 
and be a part of these painful times in their lives. What kind of ministry are you doing? Do you have like focuses or is it all just relational? And it's all relational, but a lot of it is walking with people through their suicides, addictions, the hopelessness, and whatever it takes to further those relationships, which is oftentimes providing firewood in the winter. And it's not necessarily us providing the firewood, but us providing chainsaws for these people in the community to be able to go and chop firewood and deliver, right? And then we'll pay these people to do it. So now we've created small little businesses, but they have a chainsaw and they have access to wood and they can do it. And now they get to be the ones doing the giving in the community. Cause you know, we're out here in, in Franklin, Tennessee, right? We don't need the credit. We don't need to say, oh man, and that Red Road organization out in Tennessee did this, no, no. They need to know that somebody locally cares for them. And that's what we're able to help provide in many of these cases. What's your goal for Red Road? Mm. And why was it named that? I guess that's first. Oh yeah, so the Red Road Train Native People is a term that Native people throughout the country will understand to mean living a traditional life, a traditional red man's life, if you will, mm. which might be an addiction-free life where you have respect for yourself and others, for all of creation, but you worship the creator. That's kind of what it means to walk the red road. But to us, because we follow the teachings of Jesus, the red road also represents that bloodstained road that led Jesus to the cross. And so that's where the name came from. What's your goal for the organization? What do you want to see? Man, I want to see people be able to walk away from their addictions, to fight through those, to live a healthy lifestyle, pursuing God in a very real way. Why is there this pervasive addiction and suicide within that community? Much of that, it's kind of like, it's kind of when you button up your shirt in the morning, right? If you get off on that first button, the rest of the buttons never quite line up, right? Within native communities, when Christianity was first brought to our native people, it was brought in a very bad way. They said, okay, you follow Jesus, you stop doing all of these things. You stop going to sweat lodges, you stop doing sun dances, you can't play these instruments, sing these songs, do these dances. You can't do those things anymore. Now, we don't tell somebody from Scotland, you know, who comes to know Jesus, okay, now you can't play, bagpipes you can't play the bagpipes anymore. You can't, can't wear, wear a kilt. kilt. Yeah. You can't do that. Not anymore, because now you're a new creation. Yeah. But that's exactly what they tell our native people. And then along came the, what's called the boarding schools or the residential schools, they call them up in Canada. And these were schools that were normally funded by the government, but run by various denominations. And what they would do is they would force the children into these schools, their boarding schools, these kids were forced there with very little supervision. And these kids were not allowed to speak the language, they had to cut their hair, had all of these things that were done to them. A lot of sexual abuse, yeah. lots of this is terrible, yeah. terrible stuff going on. Yeah but it was all done in the name of Jesus. Mm -hmm. And so when they left these schools, the original intent, the, the Carlisle Indian School in Carlisle, Pennsylvania was founded by a fellow last name of Pratt, 
who was a, uh, a military general or something. And his motto was to kill the Indian and save the man. That was the motto by which he founded the school. With the idea being, if we teach all these native kids how to read and write and do all of these things, when they become of age, they'll leave the schools, they'll move into the cities, they'll become more assimilated into Euro-American society. They didn't understand the tie that our native people had to our lands, our communities. And so even after all these years of abuse, they'd grown up in these schools, when these kids would leave, they'd go right back to our tribal communities. So what we know about sexual predators today is most were abused as children, right? Most were. And so when you have kids that were abused in these schools with nobody to turn to, they can't go talk to the teachers about it. The, because the, the teachers the priest, were often the, the, the predators. Yeah, exactly. So they, they grow up suffering this way. They become of age, they leave the school, they go back to their communities, they get a spouse, they have children, their children are put back into the same system. Legally, they were made to. They couldn't say, ah, I don't want my kids going there. And so you have generation after generation after generation of this, right? And so now we look and we say, well, no wonder they rely so much on alcohol or drugs to escape from all this trauma that they and their parents, their grandparents, their great-grandparents have all endured over the last 150, 170 years. So that's why we have the addiction rates and the dysfunction that we have in our native communities. And when you understand that, that takes your approach and how you deal with people completely different, completely different, right? If somebody goes into a counselor's office for therapy and the counselor, the therapist knows that child has been through this and this and this and this and this, they can approach it differently. And that's kind of been our take on it is that, man, we know historically what has happened. We know the challenges that, that have existed within our native communities. So how can we be respectful of people and, and all the stuff they've gone through? Uh, statistically, you know what they've gone, you know, a large percentage have gone through. How do we do that? And how do we love people well, mm. right? How do we love people without ulterior motives? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I want them to know about Jesus. You know, when we're in the, those native communities, we don't say we're Christians, we say we follow the teachings of Jesus. Really, what does that mean? Well, somebody's hungry, we feed them. They need clothes, you give them clothes. They're sick, <laughs> you help them get better, right? Any society will say, man, I want that, right? Don't give me a list of do's and don'ts of, well, you gotta be at church this many days of the week and you gotta do this, you gotta read this and do that. That's not what people need to hear. They need to know somebody cares about them. Whether it's on a reservation or whether it's in Nashville, Tennessee, people just want to know that people care. With the recent move to understand the root causes of mental illness and try and get healing, and has that started to filter into that community? Is there a growing awareness of you know, yeah. breaking these generational traumas and? The awareness is there, the tools to deal with it or not. Really? Yeah, yeah, because the government will not fund things that are spiritually based, mm. right? Religiously based, they will not fund those things. But to native people, we look and we say, man, the root cause of this is it's a spiritual battle as well. You know. 
without even talking about Jesus, or it's just a spiritual battle. And uh, its root cause came through some of the stuff happened through the boarding schools and those kinds of things. But we recognize that, but they did, the, the funding is not there and the tools are not there for the most part. In small pockets, there are. Small pockets of communities, there are people doing some of these things. But for the most part, it's, you know, it's not accessible. Is also part of it, I mean, are there Native American psychologists and counselors? Yeah, yeah, and that helps. You know, when you're, when you're talking to somebody or somebody's counseling who looks like you, thinks like you, yeah. has a shared experience like you, Yeah, for sure. Mm. Not, not as many as we'd like, but there are some. How can the Holy Smokes community come alongside and support not only what you're doing, but the broader initiative? And I would encourage people to find organizations in or native organizations that are doing work and just try and come alongside them. You know, I mean, uh, if, some, if anybody wants to contact us and we can say, man, I know some folks doing work in Arizona or in Washington State or in California, wherever it is, they don't necessarily have to work through our organization. I'm happy to turn them on to other people who may be closer to where they live and just say, man, just come alongside what they're doing. You know, too many times now we, people have to come in to reinvent things and try and make it better and add their flair to it. When you've got people in these native communities already doing the work, they just need some more resources for it. You know, and maybe that's bottled water, you know? Maybe that's toilet paper, laundry detergent, you know, coats in the wintertime, whatever it is. Just come alongside people that are already doing the work without feeling like you've got to have a photo op every time. That's also the hard part because people in, that we, in the communities we, we minister in, they don't see themselves as a mission field. They don't want to be on brochures and pamphlets that are being sent all over the country. They don't want that. That's degrading. So we, uh, we don't take many pictures of that kind of stuff. Yeah. You mentioned sweat lodges. Mm -hmm. Talk about a sweat lodge. I have an infrared sauna in my basement and I freaking love it. And the idea <laughs> of a sweat lodge is like, yeah, like, it sounds fascinating to yeah. me. So the idea of a, a bathhouse or a sweat lodge is something that lots and lots of Native American tribes have done throughout history. Yeah. Right? And it's for different reasons. My people, the Choctaw, had multiple different types of sweat lodges. Really? So one might be to physically cleanse yourself because, you know, maybe it was too cold to go take a bath in the river, right? There are medicinal sweats where, oh, essentially what it is, you figure like a, a small tent. Mm -hmm. And in the middle of that, there might be a hole dug and you would bring in, have rocks in a big fire pit outside of the lodge. And you'd bring in a certain amount of rocks at various times during the ceremony. And you put them in that hole in the middle and then you'll pour water on these rocks and it creates steam. Yep. And you begin to sweat and it's really hot, right? And then during that, there may be songs, there may be times of prayer, there's all these different aspects of it. And 
generically, that's kind of what a sweat lodge is. But there are certain herbs and roots and things you can put in the water or put on the rocks that will give all, have medicinal value, right? And if you understand what those things are, they can be a very healing type of a sweat. You know, sometimes it can just be a straight up just, you know, a time of pouring yourself out. There's a number of different types of sweats and some are for specific ceremonies within certain tribes. But the long and short of it is it's kind of like what you're talking about. It's a sauna, right, where you spend time in prayer. And it's pitch black so you can't see anything. Really? Yeah, because there's no lights. It's completely covered. And, uh, and it's a time of prayer, right? But because when the European missionaries began to see us going and doing, using these different types of sweats, they didn't understand it, so they assumed it had to have been wrong, mm -hmm. right? What are you doing in there? What spirits are you conjuring up? Why not go in mm. and, because if he who is in me is greater than he who is in the world, yes. take a look and see yeah. and judge for yourself. Yeah. Test the spirits. That's right. I mean, by far, my most intimate times of prayer have been in sweat lodges. I mean, there's not even a close second. Really? It's always been in sweats. But again, the church is so fearful, right? That they say, well, you can't do those things. We don't understand them, but you can't do them. So think of it like this. To our Choctaw people, when the missionaries first came to our Choctaw people in Mississippi, they'd see us praying to the sun during the daytime and praying to the moon at nighttime. Well, they assumed we were worshiping the sun and the moon. But one of the beliefs of the Choctaw at that time was in a single creator who lived in the heavens. And the sun was merely a hole in the sky through which you could easier pray to God. Or at nighttime, the hole in the sky was the moon. So if I were to go to your house and you're up in the, in the upstairs room, I'm trying to get your attention. I'm gonna be shouting up through this window, hey, hey, trying to get your attention, right? Thinking you'd see me coming through the window. But because the European missionaries did not understand that, they assumed we were worshiping the sun and the moon, thought we were polytheistic. I said, it'd be like me coming into a church if I'd never been in a church before. And I walk into a church and I see a guy in the front and he says, uh, that holds up something. and says, this is the body of Jesus or this is the blood of Jesus. Drink this and remember him. If I don't understand the ceremony, I'm gonna think you're cannibals, right? I don't want anything to do with you. Yeah. Well, it's the same thing. You've got to understand the ceremony and understand what's going on. And that's what the church has refused to do with our native people. Is that changing? In some pockets, but it's a very slow change. Because keep in mind, for people to change, now they've got to admit that the way I've done it my entire life has been wrong. The way my parents taught me, the things my parents taught me about these people were wrong. And who wants to say that your parents were all, was wrong about this stuff their whole life? Right, that's hard to admit. And even in the native communities, this culturalized or contextualized style of ministry is a very small percentage of the churches on the reservations will practice this type of culturalized ministry. They just are fearful of what they don't know still. So what else have we got wrong about Native American culture? Too many times the Christians come into our communities with this paternalistic approach. The poor Indians, let me help you. Let me do this and this and this for you. And for the most part, we're like, eh, we don't need your help. 
We'd like to have your friendship. We, just, we don't need your help. We don't need you coming in telling us everything we need to do to make our lives better in your eyes. You know, there's the old idea that a lot of times that have companies that have a hard time finding people on the reservations that would want to work a 40-hour week. From a Native perspective, you're thinking, well, I only need to work 20 hours to generate the amount of money I need to feed my family, provide for my family, so it gives me all these additional other, hours to, to spend, spend with your, exactly. spend with the family. Right, but now you want me to be here for 40 hours, now I'm making more money than I need, spending less time with my family, so I'm now buying things that I don't need, and it just begins to jack up the whole you know, family relationship, the whole balance. Yeah, the whole thing is kind of gets off kilter. So we're just trying to say, how can we be good to people? How can we just be good to each other? You know, I've had the opportunity to travel to Afghanistan and Pakistan and Qatar and throughout Europe and South America, all these different places. Regardless of where people live, regardless of what people believe, they pretty much want a couple of things in their lives, one of which them and their families to be fed, right? And they want their kids and their families to feel safe. That's pretty much it. That's it, right? All these other things are additives, but for the most part, man, I just want to feel safe. I want my family to be fed. And so the things, anything that we can do as an organization to help facilitate that, that's what we want to do. So when I started the Red, or at Sneaky Cigars, it was to, because I spent so much time just fundraising. And I was so burnt out on fundraising. And so when we started the cigar company, it was to help uh, with the proceeds going to do the work to help with the Red Road. But what happened at the same time is when I started cigar, my wife took over the leadership of the Red Road. And as you can imagine, my wife was infinitely more qualified <laughs> to lead the Red Road than I ever was. And it has, we have so many more opportunities now. She does such a great job in leading it and the communication with the people on the reservations and all of these things. It's, it's like, and my friends that know me well, they said, Charles, man, you should have turned it over to her a long time ago. <laughs> so. So yeah, so I'm. So that's where we're at. We have uh, nine kids right now, and that's been an adventure. What are their age gap? Eleven is my youngest, to twenty-four. And uh, some God has given us through the uh, miracle of biological birth. Some He's given us through adoption. Some He's just brought into our home and just said, "I need a safe place to live for a while," and we consider all of them ours. Wow. And. We have this belief that when, in the Bible, when, when it says that we're supposed to look after the orphans and the widows, that when that opportunity comes up, we don't need to pray and ask God, God, should I take care of this orphan or this widow? God said, I already told you to do it, right? If I tell my kids, uh, hey, go clean your room, and they come back to me two days later and say, Dad, should I clean my room? Yeah, I already told you to clean it. You don't have to come ask me, should you do what I already told you to do? And the same thing with the people where God has given us opportunity to be a part of people's lives. And that doesn't necessarily mean everybody's supposed to adopt children, but everybody can have a part in that adoption process. Totally. 
whether they're helping fund others or they're bringing clothing or diapers or whatever. Being a little league coach or... There's lots of ways we can serve. Yeah. Lots of ways. How has this journey changed you as a person? It's made me be much more thankful, much more grateful. When I go into communities that are very far below the poverty line, you know, three of the five poorest counties in the United States are on reservations in South Dakota. And when we're in these communities, you see people that are just extreme poverty, but a whole lot happier and are more giving. Now, it wasn't always that way for me. When I'd go to these communities with my wife, and we, we take these things called, we call them baskets of hope. And it's a laundry basket. It's filled with about $100 worth of household items. And we'll go to Dollar General and we'll fill these things up and we'll take them and we'll give them out to people. This is a gift. It's not a, let me give you this so that I can tell you about Jesus. It's just like, Starting the relationship. Yeah. And um, when I first do that, I'm thinking, okay, well, we need to do it and have this all done by, you know, eight o'clock at night, the latest. Cause you know, people are getting tired, they're going to bed. My wife's like, what do you mean? No, no, no. Their lights are still on. We're stopping by people's house at 10, 10.30 at night that we don't even know. We're just knocking on doors and people receive us, you know, cause it's natives helping natives, right? And then we come on in and they get out the coffee and we're all sitting around talking and chatting. But the funny thing is when they start, you know, it's 10.30 at night, 11 o'clock at night, they start, hey, would you guys hungry? Have y'all eaten yet? Yeah, yeah, we are there. Well, here, let me have some of this. They started fixing dinner for you. That, and one time, I'm not even kidding, one time it was about 10, 30, 11 o'clock at night, was at these people's home, in this remote area on the reservation in South Dakota. And they're trying to feed us. We already ate. No, 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 you're going to like this. They go to the freezer, they pull out some meat to begin thawing it out. And we was there till like <laughs> three or four in the morning, and we just had the best time. You know, they're very receiving people, very loving, very caring, very giving. Charles Robinson, how do people support the Red Road? They, if anybody's interested, can go to our website. It's theredroad.org. 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 And we have a link on there for anybody who wants to make a, a donation. You know, we're 501c3, everything's tax deductible. And that's one way to do it. Or shoot us an email through the website and just say, hey, we want to, I want to know more. Or, or there, is there a, an organization or a, a tribe near where I live? And I'm, my wife and I are happy to get back with people and just say, yeah, here's how you can do that. Just be a part of lives. Years ago, um, my wife or my kids and I, or some of them, um, we're asked to be in a, in a video, country music video. And we've done a number of those things through the years. And this particular one was uh, for Tim McGraw's Humble and Kind video. So we're in that video, a short snippet. And I remember thinking to myself after that, that that really is the epitome of it. You know, when we can be kind to people, when we can be giving to people, and when we can do it without expecting to be get a pat on the back or be recognized or get her name on a billboard, you know, there's never going to be any elementary schools named after Charles Robinson. I can promise you that, right? And that's okay. 
let's just serve, let's just be kind, and let's, let's love people, and let's just pour into people. That's what we want to do. Charles Robinson, I know you got to go. You got to go pick up your kid. We don't have time for rapid fire questions, but thank you for being on the Holy Smokes podcast. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Hey, everyone. I wanted to announce that we have Holy Smokes gear. That's right. We have swag. We currently have hats, shirts, stickers, like for your vehicle or your travel humidor, magnets, even branded bourbon glasses for a limited time. Go to holysmokes.club and click on the shop tab. That's holysmokes.club. I'm super proud of the shirts. They're made with Bella Canvas shirts that are soft and incredibly comfortable. The hats fit wonderfully, which can be a problem for those of us with big noggins. We plan on having a lot more to offer, like Guayabara shirts, additional t-shirt designs, beanies, polos, hoodies, cigar accessories, and much more. Check it out. And even if you don't make a purchase now, be sure to sign up for that email list, as I've thrown a couple big discount coupon codes for those exclusively on that list. So click the shop tab at holysmokes.club. Thanks. Thanks.